This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, and you know he is—he gives a sense of a sense of urgency for the things of God. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the shortest: Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the shortest of the four. Uh, when we go into Mark's Gospel, we'll see that he makes his point and he moves on. Perfect for New Jerseyans in 2013, right? Because we're so busy. Hey, Mark, what do you got to say? You know, he's he's very snappy with his tempo. He uses words like immediately. Truthfully, you know, he, this is his observation of the things that have happened. He uses words like astonished. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. You know, I really, um, this was the last gospel I've taught all three of them except for this one. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next few months. And just to give you a little overview, uh, and I do that before we cover any book, any letter, because it's important, you know. Why do we believe what we believe? What does other sources say about this? Well, just some overview. It'll take a few minutes doing that before we jump into the message. When was it written? Between A.D. 55 and A.D. 65. It's narrowed down to that 10-year span. Uh, and most likely it was the earliest gospel. Who was it written to? Well, primarily a Roman audience. Right? Romans respected service and discipline. As a matter of fact, Jesus emulated service and discipline. And that's what he tried to instill in his disciples. And that's really, as Christians, what we should display as well. Now, we could almost look at this as the letter to the Romans before the Romans. We know that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. However, Mark's gospel really hits the Romans with the truth of, of gospel in Jesus Christ before Romans was written. Um, we know that Mark got a lot of his information from the Apostle Peter. Peter wrote first and second Peter, but this is kind of a work of Peter and Mark together before first and second Peter. So this is an early book, as James was an early book. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Well, that's an easy one, John Mark. Now, the life of John Mark can be pieced together, and it's very important, I believe, for you to know the man who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned this Gospel. Well, we know that uh, John Mark was Barnabas's cousin, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas and Paul initially started out together on their missionary journeys, but they took John Mark, and John Mark, uh, he quit early, and that caused problems between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And we know that John Mark also, according to Mark 14, and we'll cover it, it appears that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested and he fled, just like many of the other disciples. Not saying that John Mark was... A, understand this, you have your apostles, the 12 apostles, and then you have your disciples, which is a looser term, which really we're disciples of Christ, even though it's 2,000 years later. We're to be taught by the Lord. We're to be disciplined by the Lord. We're to emulate the Lord. So in a sense, we're disciples. Now, John Mark left early on this missionary journey. And it was very important that you had people there that you could trust and you could rely on. So in a sense, John was, or Mark was unreliable, and the Apostle Paul uh, knew that, and he espoused that, and it caused a big dissension, again, between him and Barnabas. And you can say, and I'm not going to say that we would say that or God would say that, but if the world was looking at it, he could say, well, gee, he failed the Lord Jesus in this time of need, and he failed the Apostle Paul. And who knows who else he failed? He's a failure. Again, that's how the world might look at it. However, Mark was redeemable. He changed, and he became useful not only to the Apostle Paul and the cause of Christ, but to the Lord Jesus himself because of what he did. 
So he had a changed life. He didn't look back, and his legacy is that he wrote one of the four Gospels. So that's pretty good. That's really a good rags-to-riches type story in a sense. Now, personally, I had two Sicilian grandfathers. You're like, where does this come into play? <laughs> and one of them, if you didn't do what he thought you should be doing, or if you didn't think he'd use, be useful, if you weren't useful to him, he'd go, eh, good for nothing. And I might have heard that a few times in my life. And early on, I did try to get out of doing things. And in, just like Mark, I wasn't useful at times. But there came a point in time where I understood God's purpose for my life. And then once that, that happened, there was a change. There was a spark. Something happened. Okay, I understood I had purpose now, that God had something for me to do. So my life from that point completely changed. So I can tell you that from a personal level and... If you're out there sitting in these seats, and I don't know your story, you might be new to the church. You might have a past. You might think, you know, I just, whatever I do, it just seems to flop. There's hope. There's hope. Because if God could change Mark and have him write the gospel of Mark, then he could change you. So keep that in mind. Why was it written? The main theme? Again, service, sacrifice, discipline for the Romans... They liked the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. However, there was an ugly and dark side of the Roman peace. That was slavery, brutality, executions, and crucifixions. So Romans liked the way society was because it was relatively safe and peaceful. However, they didn't talk about how they had to get that peace in polite circles. Mark is trying to get them to identify with Christ, who has the qualities that they like, but make the transition from the Roman Empire to the everlasting empire of God's kingdom. Rome's gone. Rome's been gone for a long time. We may have some vestiges of it, but it's gone. The fires of Vestia will burn forever. Really? Anybody see any fires of Vestia anywhere in the world? I don't. Where was it written? That's really insignificant, although some people believe that this portion of Scripture was written in Rome. What about the Christ in Mark? And we always have to look at every book and say, where do we see Christ in this book? Well, Jesus portrays, or Jesus is portrayed as other-centered. One scripture that may sum up this book is Mark 10:45, which we'll get to. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, if we are to emulate Jesus Christ we have to be doing as well as hearing. Understand this, that when we hear, and I don't mean stuff on TV or hear what's going on in the world, when we hear God's word, when we read God's word, it compels us to act. James tells us that. We can't just be hearers, we have to be doers as well. So this may be convicting to some. You know, it's a very powerful portion of scripture. Christians today need to be serving or sacrificing or being discipled or discipling others in some way. Here's the the real truth. And you know, when we, I I never come up here any Sunday and, and have my prayer list and there's nothing on it. I never say, oh Lord, here we come before you today and we have nothing to ask you. Nobody's sick. Nobody's killing anybody in the world. There's peace everywhere. Oh Lord, what a wonderful day. Right? All you have to do is look in the paper and find out in your own communities, in your own families, in your own country, in the world that you live in, there's problems, and they're getting worse. And man 
centered government does not know what to do, I submit to you. So here's the question. What am I doing with my time while the world is burning? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Because we don't have to go far to find somebody that's hurting and, could need, and needs ministering to. In his book, Be Diligent, Warren Wearsby has a foreword by Pastor Ken Baugh. And I like the way he puts this. He says, church attendance in America is declining. And more and more people are turning to alternate forms of spirituality rather than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Could it be, at least in part, that people are turning away from Jesus and his church because we, as his followers, have neglected to develop the one character trait that Jesus modeled for us over and over again? Could it be that the reason people flocked to Jesus was he, because he personified this all-important character trait? Could it be that this particular trait is the one that really gets people's attention because when it is lived out, it is so countercultural, good word, that people can't help but notice and attribute its presence to something supernatural? What is this character trait? The answer is servanthood. I believe that servanthood is the character trait that wins the hearts of people who are looking for a faith that is real. And John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, believed that too. Warren Wiersbe continues on, along that thought. He says, I fear that in the church today we have too many spectators and not enough participants, too many celebrities and not enough servants. You'll find out quickly if you're new to this church that I'm not one of those pastors that points the fingers at everybody outside. They are going to be judged and damned. They will stand before God for their sins. I'm one of those pastors like these guys who says, as the church, we can do better. The Bible says that judgment starts with the house of God. We need to clean our own closets so that we can go out into the world and make a difference in this world. When I die, I want to stand before the Lord. I'm not going to get any great medals. There's going to be plenty of martyrs and Christians in other countries who did far better and far more than me. I just want to hear the Lord say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, with what I gave you to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. A Christian can never be considered mature if they don't have the heart of a servant. So let's start with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, quote, now he's quoting from the Old Testament, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. It's Malachi 3.1. Continues, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, that word crying, I believe it's boao in the Greek, and that's not boo-hoo, John sat there with a bunch of Kleenexes, okay? This is about John the Baptist. This is a lowing of an ox. This is a, you need to repent. The Lord is coming. The kingdom is coming. I would love, if God has any videos of it, when I get to heaven, I want to see how he preached, because I bet he was powerful. And when we look at his dress, he looked probably kind of freaky to the people back then. He looked very different. We continue, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mm, sounds good. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, 
whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've done this with all the Gospels before. I'm going to add, not what I say, I'm going to add different parts of the Scripture and put it all together. So I'm going to go into Matthew and Luke and John and paint a big picture for you as we go through this. Remember, Mark is concise. He's to the point. He moves on to another vignette. Now, the other Gospels will tell you that Religious leaders, the sanctimonious, self-righteous religious leaders came out and they asked them questions. Who gave you this authority? Some said, what should I do? How could I change? The Romans, the, the, what we would consider the military and the police officers came out and said to John, what should we do? Don't steal money from people. Don't intimidate anybody. He, he was not afraid of anybody. No matter who you are and you came to him, he was ready to dish it out and dole it out. And we're going to talk about what repentance means. But Mark doesn't go into genealogies or philosophical discussions about Christ's deity, which are all good. He goes right for what will appeal to his Roman audience. Service, discipline, urgency, and he starts with the first vignette or scene, and that's John the Baptist. Now, he doesn't quote a lot of Old Testament scripture. However, he has to quote Malachi 3.1, and I believe this is really the only place where you see this italicized, where he hits the Old Testament heavy. Uh, He has to quote Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 because it talks about why John came the way he did. Malachi was 400 years before Christ and Isaiah was 700 years before Christ. And I said this when we had our uh, Christmas pageant. I gave the gospel. I said, you know, the United States is about, it's actually less than 300 years old. So let's put this in perspective. If God was to take us in a time warp and put us in the time of George Washington with the horses and the carts and no iPhones and and Facebook and texting, we would feel lost. We would really have a hard time because our country almost 300 years ago was a completely different place. So here you have God prophesying things 400 years, 700 years before this actually happens in great detail. Pretty impressive. Amen? I love the power of God's word. When you start getting into all the the, the particulars uh, regarding it, it really kind of blows your doors off. Now, I want to continue because in Isaiah 40, verse 4, okay, which he didn't quote, but in the other gospels they do, he says this, every valley, think about this, shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight. And the rough places made smooth. What is John saying here? Is he preparing to build a mall? So he's got to get the the land all right so that people could come and go with ease? No, it's not literal. What he's saying is he's got a difficult job, or the prophet said he has a difficult job, and they were paralleling his difficult job with earth moving before the days of caterpillars and hydraulics. This is pretty serious business. This was a pretty serious guy. Amen? So John was a hard man doing a hard job, a hard job. And I believe that he, if he was to be brought th- this way in a time warp, if God could do that, and he was to do the circuit in the churches of the area, even some Calvaries, I guarantee by the time he was done preaching, the pastor would say, that's very nice, don't come back. I really believe that. Why do I believe this? Because repentance is not popular to be preached from the pulpit. And pastors succumb to this 
personality thing, this cult of personality, social pressure, because society is, is pushing one way. God's word is pushing another way. We have to be brave and not cowards and preach what the Bible says because behavior always follows belief. If you don't believe in repentance, you will act accordingly, and that act is not going to be good. Verse 15, even Jesus preached repentance, and we'll get to that. We're not going to get to that this morning. We're only going to cover a few verses. This is a long chapter. In addition, when Jesus taught on forgiveness in Luke 17, he said, check this out, before forgiveness comes repentance and sometimes rebuke. Now, personally, I don't like to get into arguments with people. I really don't. I know you might think otherwise by my preaching, but, and I know a lot of you. You, don't, you, just, you want to take the path of least resistance. But in order for there to be good harmony in a relationship when there's a problem, sometimes there needs to be rebuke and there needs to be repentance. Otherwise, you're building back on a faulty foundation. This becomes crucial when we understand that you don't just come to Jesus. Now, some of you are going to be like, what, pastor? You do an altar call every Sunday. What do you mean you don't just come to Jesus? I mean that we can't say, Jesus is attractive to me, and I'm going to take him, and I'm going to shrinky-dink him to a little life-size, little figurine. I'm going to put him on my pantheon of gods in my life. My God of money, my God of my popularity, my God of my success. And Jesus is kind of up there with all the other little gods in our lives. We don't just come to Jesus. We repent first. We change our minds about everything we've learned up until the point where we face Jesus, either in word or through evangelism or even through a dream or a vision, which is happening in the Middle East, even though they've outlawed churches. Powerful testimonies. The purpose of this hard preaching and this repentance, Luke 1.16 says it, says it great. He, meaning John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Sometimes when you want something that's really good, we have to go through something difficult to get that really good. And sometimes it's just as simple as looking in the mirror and saying, you know what, I'm looking at God's word and I don't measure up. I don't measure up. Maybe I need to repent because God's really attractive and I do want him. But in this state, it's just going to be a dysfunctional relationship. There's also repentance after salvation. Why? Because we still sin. I know um, a brother really enjoyed one Sunday when I would say, I said over and over, your sinner pastor still needs to repent. Your sinner pastor still needs to confess his sins. Amen to that. While we're in this body of death, as the Apostle Paul puts it, this flesh that wants its own way, we still sin and we have to repent. On a personal relationship, today, a lot of people, even in the church, two parties are arguing about something, they can't come to an agreement, one party leaves. You know how many times I've seen that? Instead of digging in and praying and trying to work it out and getting, you know, trying to get things right, no matter how many times it takes so that you can restore that relationship. And it's a sad thing to see because the church isn't called to be a dysfunctional family. The church is called to set the example because we have the word of God. And like Mark says, we need to act on it. But that doesn't, it's not always what happens. Here's another misconception about repentant. That the alcoholics and the drug addicts and the thieves and the prostitutes are the only ones that need to repent. 
and the ones often pointing the finger, and you've seen it all. I'm sure you've seen it. You've been in church long enough, different churches. The ones pointing the bony fingers at everybody, they're the ones who are the self-righteous, they're the sanctimonious, they're the careless talkers, they're the busybodies. They need to repent as well. We all need to repent. That kind of attitude makes people not want to come to church. It's a bad example. Any Christian, any Christian who says in their heart, I have nothing to repent about, I have nothing to die to, maybe pride is the issue. Maybe it's not anything anybody else can see. Maybe it's a matter of your heart. There's a um, home, I, I, I never give homework assignments, but if you don't mind, I'm going to give one this morning. Casting Crowns, they're a Christian group. They're great, aren't they? They do a lot. I know you're, you're probably thinking about what I'm going to say. You, you have that kind of gift there? I don't know. But basically, Casting Crowns did a uh, video. They did several of them. One is called, Does Anybody Hear Her? How many of you have seen that? Okay, everybody, go home. Not now, <laughs> when I'm done. Go on to YouTube, Does Anybody Hear Her? Casting Crowns. And that really, uh, this guy must have been in churches for a while. It just shows the attitude of the people in the church not accepting somebody who doesn't look like the rest of us look. Great video. And let me know what you think when you're done with it. Last word on John and his ministry. His baptism did not save. Let's make that perfectly clear. We have to get into doctrinal issues at time here. We need to understand this. His baptism was more of a preparation and it was symbolic to receive the coming Christ. John says it himself in verse 7, which we read. Also, John says that Jesus, as I baptize you with water, that's it, H2O, down, up, H2O, down, up, preparation, it's in your heart, da, 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 da. Jesus, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I love that. Baptism is, baptizo is a, is a full immersion. It's, if you ever watch the slow motion video of somebody actually getting baptized and the water envelops them as they go down, it's a very powerful picture. That's what God wants to do to us with the Holy Spirit, with a part of himself. He wants the Holy Spirit. He wants a part of him. He wants us to be enveloped by his love and his counsel and his wisdom and his guidance. Jesus, he will come. And when you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, when God has used you in a mighty way, there is nothing on earth that compares to that feeling. It overwhelms you physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Amen? For those of you who have experienced it. I want to read verse 6 again because I, I like this. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now this was a fashion statement, folks. God kept him in the wilderness for a reason. Why? So he wouldn't get poisoned by society. Amen to that. As Christians, brothers and sisters, we're out in society long enough it's like we, we get dirty. We need a bath. We need a shower. We need to get cleaned off. Some of us have some really difficult jobs that we go into, and you hear gossip, and you see heartbreak, and you see death. And you know what? You just need a shower. You need a bath. You need to get back to where we're going. John didn't have designer sandals and designer tunics. He had something that most people probably wouldn't have worn. His choice of food, most people wouldn't have eaten. Now, I like honey, but I, maybe I try the fried crickets or whatever, but, you know, it was, it was actually legal under the law, so that was a good thing. But, but John was not 
poisoned by society. Let's keep that in mind. He had an important job to do, and if he was influenced, he couldn't do the job that God sent him forth to do. Verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in Mark's tempo, he describes Christ's ministry as this second vignette or the second scene. So we're moving from John the Baptist really to Christ's inauguration, right? His, his anointing, the start of his ministry. Now understand that Jesus did not get baptized because this is a good question that some ask. Astute people will say, well, I don't get it. Everybody else was getting baptized for their remission of sins. Then why did John dunk Jesus? It wasn't for that. As a matter of fact, John asked the same question. In Mark 3, he says, I'm going to baptize, I should be baptized by you, not me baptizing you. You've got to see the exchange in, in Matthew chapter 3. John, it was a little troubling to him. And Jesus said, no, 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 per- permit it to be so. You know, this has to happen. It's not a baptism. I'm not a sinner. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is what has to happen. And when he came out of the water, you had the Father's voice, you had the Son inaugurated, and you had the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. So you had the whole picture of the Trinity there at the same time. Verse 12. And immediately the Spirit drove him, sent him out into the wilderness, and there he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So this is going to be our third and final vignette for the morning. Christ is sent to be tempted and tried by Satan. You ever ask yourself this question why is this in the Bible? What does this mean? How does it affect me? What's the application I can take from this? Well, let me um, tell you what I think, a few reasons, and then I'll get into really each temptation that Mark gives a generality for, but the other gospel writers put it in more detail. So the first thing is that no one's ever done this before. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever had a 100% success rate in resisting sin. Let me put my hand behind my back just so you don't get any idea that I'm scratching my head or putting my hand up. Not me. I don't see one hand in this room that's going up. No. None of us have ever 100% resisted temptation to sin. However, Jesus did. So two, it lends to his deity. He had the ability to do those things even in a weakened state of fasting. Sometimes when we're at our weakest, we'll just give in just so that we can you know, be comforted because our body has very strong desires. Three, he's our example, and he showed us that in him, only in him can we have victory over sin and temptation, one sin at a time. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to, again, we still don't have a 100% success rate, but he gives us the ability in the spirit to resist those temptations and those trials. The fourth reason, before I go into these in detail, is that you have this close association with mountaintop experiences and valley experiences. Now, especially in ministry, you know, if you have a heart for the lost, if you're running a ministry, if you're in some type of ecclesiastical leadership, you will find that the more powerful the ministry is, the more the Holy Spirit is a part of it, that it's not going to take long before Satan tries to chip one block at a time, scrape the mortar a little bit at a time until he takes everything down or tries to. 
So this is our life, folks. I've never seen Satan attack a dead church, ever. He doesn't have to. He goes after the ones that are alive and winning people to the, to, you know, the cross. So expect that. Because that's what we're married to until his kingdom comes and changes all that. Now, I want to go into these three basic temptations. So the first temptation is, you know, Satan and Jesus are alone. And Jesus has been fasting. And I'm going to take a little artistic liberty here, if you don't mind. I could picture Satan saying to Jesus, you look a little thin. You're probably going to die soon. And you know what? It's only me and you here. Look, those stones, you're the son of God. It would be nothing for you to snap your finger and take those stones and turn it into bread. Not even sinful. Whoever said turning a stone into bread was sinful. So why don't you take care of yourself? Why don't you look out for number one? Go ahead, take that stone and turn it into bread. Jesus answered him. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Pastor Joe, so what am I going to do with that when I leave this building this morning? Okay. The first trial or the first temptation was a physical temptation. See, we live in these bodies, these soma, right? The sarks in the Greek. And the body has a mind of its own. Don't believe me? How many people do you know that have fallen off a, a ladder or got hit by a car and they're unconscious? And the body fights for survival, doesn't it? And, or what about if they lose a, a hand or a limb? What does the body do? It naturally starts to constrict the blood vessels in that area to stop the, the loss of blood flow. You don't even have to think about it. You could be completely out, and your body is fighting really hard to keep you alive. The body has a mind of its own. The body tells you, hey, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I think I want to get something to eat. It's almost like the Jedi mind trick. The Bible says, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I think I'm going to go get a bottle of water. The Bible says, I'm cold. Let me, let me find my jacket. The body tells us what to do. So we can succumb, unfortunately, to these physical temptations every single day. Every single day, your mind is bombarded with suggestions, some from God, some from Satan, some from your own body, some from you. And sometimes it's difficult to figure out where the source is coming from. Amen? So the first temptation is a physical temptation. What's Jesus' answer? That we don't just live by bread or water or comfort or shelter. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Christians, what should we be doing? The word of God should be more important than our necessary food. Because guess what? We are going to live longer in eternity with our new spiritual bodies and with the Lord than with these bodies of death that have been telling us what to do for the last few decades. Right? Here's the second temptation. Jesus you know, Satan takes Jesus on this high pinnacle of the temple. And he says, cast yourself down. Now, Satan is a good, he's good with quoting scripture. Unfortunately, he takes it out of context. Everything that he said was right out of Psalm 91. He goes, throw yourself off of this high pinnacle. Because it is written in Psalm 91 that God will charge his angels concerning you. They will bear you up lest your foot be dashed against a stone. So even the little, the little epithelial cells on the top of your toes, they won't even dash a stone and you won't lose any of those. Now, if you understood the old city and the old temple, I don't want to get too much into this, but there were pinnacles. There was the southeast corner and the southwest corner when the wall was up, which the wall is not there anymore except for a little portion called the Wailing Wall. So in the southeast corner 
was a really high point on the wall. And if you look down, there was a precipice of the Kidron Valley, which was over 100 feet. So surely if Jesus was to jump off of that, he probably would have been killed, uh, except for supernatural uh, intervention. On the, south, on the southwest corner, below was a marketplace where people would come and they would, they would buy and they would sell, and, and a lot of the Jews were there. And the innuendo, I think, is that, you know, just jump off and, hey, you'll show them real quickly that you're the Messiah because God will just swoop you up. Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord thy God. How does that apply to us? This is a psychological temptation. And brothers and sisters, this is why I'm shortening the message because this is really important. We are bombarded in society with psychological innuendos. You know, and even with the commercials, I think they might have banned some of the use of it, but they'll throw, they'll flash things so quickly that you don't see it, but your brain picks it up. You know, there's uh, commercials are designed to twist your mind. You know what's really sad? There's some ministries that are doing that too. Word Faith Movement is a big one. Its design is to get you happy all the time, is to work on your endorphins and your, your good chemicals in your brains to make you feel good through the message so that you'll keep giving them money. So they just become richer and richer, more holdings, more holdings, and you just, you're walking on air. But when you hit your first trial, you're in the dumps. Why? Because you don't have enough faith to get through healing. You don't have enough faith to get through your business that's failing. And I'm sorry, but this is the way it is. You can take any of these teachings and they'll do what Satan did. They will take the word out of context to make you feel good, to elicit a certain response so you keep coming back for more. When we talk about drugs, when we talk about sex, you know where the feeling comes from? Not our peripheral bodies. The feeling comes from the brain. Whether it's, um, oh, okay, I can't remember the chemical. I know there's five of them. Thank you. That's it. Dopamine. <laughs> that feeling of well-being, of euphoria. That's what these things do. So this was a psychological... Now let me, let me go into it a little bit in a different venue. Jesus. Where's the Father? You know, where is he? James, where's God? Is your business failing? You doing okay? How long have you been praying for that business? Hey, Bill back there. How's your marriage doing? You know, hey, how's your kid? Your kid walked away. And this is what Satan does. He comes up to us and he fills us with innuendo. Where's God? I'm right here. I'm giving you good suggestions. Where's God? I don't see him. What's this whole thing about the persistent widow? You just keep praying and praying and eventually God will listen to your, your prayers. What kind of nonsense is that? I'm right here. Listen to me. You know what? That's what Satan does. He's a liar. And Jesus answered it with scripture. He says, don't test the Lord your God. Well, I'm going to take these bottle of pills and I'm going to down them right now. And God better stop me if he loves me. It's not how it works. A relationship with God is a day-by-day -day walk with him. You understand? It's a relationship. It isn't like these fleeting little love relationships where we try to make each other jealous and, well, I'm going to go out and do this or I'm going to go out and hurt myself. That's what the world does. God wants a lasting, solid relationship with you. And don't be deceived by things that come into your mind that tell you something otherwise. He's not here. Where is he? Third temptation. Satan says to Jesus, look at all these kingdoms. Look at Babylon. Look at Jerusalem. You know, look at the United States. That's in the future. Look at Europe. These are mine. Now, he was right. Adam forfeited them. He forfeited them. So Satan took control of them. And he said to Jesus, basically, and I'm embellishing here, 
Why go to the cross? The cross? You're the son of God. That shouldn't, that's not fitting for you. Look, they're all here. You can have them right now. All I ask you to do, it'll take you one second, bow down and worship me. Jesus said to them, him, you shall only worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. Away with, away with you. Now, how does that affect us? This affects us spiritually, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we believe that God is taking too long. Sometimes we believe that God is a hard taskmaster. Well, I had a relative that just died, and it's been months now, and I have to take sleeping pills to fall asleep. Where are you, God? Where are you? And Satan is right there to say, well, why don't you join me? All you have to do is bow down. That business that's failing, hey, by the end of the month, you're going to be into six figures. Trust me on this one. I can do it. I own these kingdoms. You, um, in college over there, you, uh, you know, you really don't fit in and, and you're not very popular. All you have to do is worship me. Overnight, I'll get you 5,000 friends on Facebook. Right? I can do it. I have the ability. And he's right. He tells the truth, but he twists the truth. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we need to know the word. Because what happens is when you leave this church and you're by yourself, that's when he works on you. Because Satan is a bully. What do bullies do? They get you alone when nobody's looking and they push you and they taunt you and they say things. That's what Satan will do to you. When you leave this place, I guarantee before the week is over, he will get you alone and he will suggest one of these three things to you. Don't listen to that pastor. He's an idiot. Look what I can provide. That pastor, he doesn't care about you. There's nothing he can do for you. Don't I do that well? You know what I found? That the best representations of evil and Satan come from Christian authors in movies and books. Why? Because we know the truth so well that we know how the enemy works to try to break down the truth. Amen? And this is what Jesus was trying to show us in these three temptations and trials because we're all going to succumb to all of these the longer we live. Don't let Satan have his way in your life. Don't, don't let him have his way. We need to answer those trials and those temptations the way Jesus answered them. Amen? That's why it's in the scripture, by the way. I titled the sermon, Hit the Ground Running, for good reason. You know, it also coincides with our year-end report. It coincides nicely with the fact that we're going into a new year. Why do we do what we do as a church? Because we try to emulate what Christ did. Otherwise, we're just a bustling social club. We might just get together for food and coffee and drinks all the time. The only thing that makes us a church is the fact that we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior and that everything that we do is based on the Holy Scripture. Otherwise, we're just a social club. When it was the appointed time, John the Baptist and Christ hit the ground running. Why? Because the world that they lived in was devoid of hope. It was devoid of spiritual truth. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years later, read the paper. If you think that man is going to solve our problems, if you think that, and there's another false theology out there that says the church is going to change the world in, in such a great form that Jesus is finally going to, it's going to be a palatable world and he's going to come down. That's not what the scripture says. We're to make an impact and God grades us not on our results, but the effort we put into it. The world grades us, I don't care how you do it, just get me a thousand widgets by the end of the week. God says, just put your effort into it. I want to see your heart. I'll determine how many come out of the machine. I'll determine how many get saved. I'll determine how many marriage gets, get, marriages come back together. 
I'll determine how many miracles get performed, but I want to see your heart. We live in a world with hurting people. We don't have to go far from our houses or this church to find them. And I have to tell you, I really was blessed by the live nativity because a lot of people from the community came out. And let me just say this, because let's just be real here. Quite a few of those people came up to me, and they definitely had been imbibing some, uh, some holiday spirits. Let me just say that. Now, I don't say that to say that I'm, I hope and pray that they come to this church. That's where I'm going with this. Those are the people that we want to reach. And you know what? They made a choice that night. They had the bottle, and they had the message of hope. And my prayer is that they looked at the bottle... And they saw that it really couldn't provide them anything, but they heard the message of, the, of hope and that they moved on and they want to change their lives because of it. They want to latch onto that and throw the bottle in the garbage. That's my desire. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the last days. And you could think that's crazy and go find a church, and many do, where everything is nicey-nicey and you know, we don't talk about this kind of stuff. But we need to be in our Father's business. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, he said, the harvest is white for the harvest. The harvest is white and ripe for picking, but the laborers are few. I want to be one of those laborers. If the world ends tomorrow, I want to know that I did what the Lord has called me to do. So I would just ask, and and my desire is that God has a family business. And Jesus said, I need to be about my father's business. He wanted to be in the family business. And the family business was the redemption of souls. The family business was about seeing lives changed and turned around. The family business in the apostles' day was that they turned the world upside down. That was what was said about them. Look at what they're doing. So brothers and sisters, let us pray as we go home that we would be one of those laborers, those few laborers that will make a difference in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. Your word is, is water to our lips. Your word is honey to our tongues. Your word is...